Welcome to the Task Podcast. The, uh, this afternoon we are back in Chiang Mai. Uh, and again, I think we did another podcast here a few weeks ago. We're in the camp co-working space, which is in Maya Shopping Centre, uh, level five in a meeting room. Maybe a bit echoey, not the, the best quality we've had, but um, yeah, we're here with, with a, a friend of, I think, probably 10-ish years, uh, who I call, referred to as P. So you'll hear me call him P throughout this conversation, but uh, full name is Podrick Flynn. Did I get that right? That's all right. That's an acceptable pronunciation. <laughs> I would say the correct one would be Podrick. Podrick, okay. Flynn from Kerry in Ireland, West Kerry, uh, or Southwest Kerry. Um, yes, but my nickname locally in Irish would be Poddy. Poddy. Uh, two friends and very close, uh, yeah, family and friends, it would be Pod. But when I got to Dublin at the age of 17 to go to university, um, even that name was foreign for them. Paulie was more known to a Dublin denizen than Paddy would have been. And hence, over the years, particularly in Asia, it's morphed into Paddy, which is fine by me. Well, for me, it's P, which is nice and easy. So uh, we won't get if, lost. If anyone wants to find me on LinkedIn or anything like that, just look for Paddy Flynn. That's the easiest way to find me. P-A-D-D-Y, Flynn, F-L-Y-N-N. So on that subject, you jumped to LinkedIn. I mean, I, we're mates. I don't spend time on your LinkedIn profile. I probably spend right. more time on uh, more time on Instagram with you. But, uh, you know, just a little bit of background. I mean, you know, you've got a background professionally in data, yep. ten, ten, 10 plus years. Um, but give us the, rather than me kind of steal your thunder, just give us the the professional stuff because we're going to talk a little bit about what you do professionally because it links into what we do all right um, so yeah just give, give us a bit of background on who you are professionally i don't know if there's any thunder to be stolen <laughs> um but i'll give it chronologically if that makes sense because i think i mentioned that i i moved from a place called kerry in southwest ireland if you've never been it's a very very beautiful uh, place kind of tourist place um but not exactly a hub for data and analytics um, so I moved out when I was about 17, went to Dublin, did a degree in chemistry of all things in University College Dublin. Um, then after kind of messing about in Germany, working in a paint lab and BMW, actually sorry Volkswagen Audi, um, then ended up in Korea for a while, that was my first stint in Asia, then came back to Ireland and did a transfer degree and a master's in economics, I got into that, I won't go into the details of how that happened. Uh, from there, I worked in research, economic research, uh, in Trinity, in a, an outfit called the, oh God, it's the triple IS. The, it's basically any name you could have without mentioning globalization. The Institute for International Integration Studies, <laughs> full of sociologists, economists, and stuff like that, looking at the global economy and you know, what it meant in terms of economic impact, but also in terms of sociological impacts. Um, and I actually was looking off the guy who was heading it up at the time is now the current um, head of the Irish Central Bank, um, a guy called Philip Lane, you know, quite, quite a top economist. Um, so from there, I kind of decided, you know, probably the, the lure of the dollar, shall we say. Uh, while I love research, I love teaching, uh, went into consultancy for an American company uh, called Analytic Partners. I was a startup before startups were cool, if you will. Um, a lady called Nancy Smith was the founder and president. Phenomenal, phenomenal powerhouse of a, of, of a person. Um, spent four years with them. The latter 
year and a half in APAC, based in Singapore, but really always on the road, either up in Japan, in China, or in Australia, working on projects. Um, so that kind of, you know, I went from kind of, if people want to know what's the jump there, economics, of course, you can imagine as data and whatnot. You're looking kind of macroeconomics and micro. When I jumped into consultancy, I'm doing econometric modeling, which is a specific type of kind of statistics, um, doing it for companies to measure the impact of their marketing endeavors. So it can be both media and non-media, so promotions, distribution, you know, stores expansion, a wealth of, of factors, and also things just like the economy or any headwinds or tailwinds, competitive factors. Um, so essentially kind of doing analysis on that, once you have that, then you get companies' recommendations about what they should be doing to hit their targets or to optimize their business or to you know, become more efficient. And then from there, I ended up starting with um, a company called uh, Mediacom, who are part of Group M, which is part of the WPP holding group. For those who don't know, this is the media world, the advertising world, to be, uh, to be correct. Um, WPP, quite famous for uh, being the largest holding group in the world, uh, founded by Sir Martin Sorrell back in the, God, was it in 79? Um, and then from there, so work with Mediacom, and now I currently work with Group M, doing similar types of stuff in terms of measuring, in particular, the media effectiveness for our clients. Yeah. Um, and then as data has grown um, and become much more pervasive in what we do in media, it's always been there, it's, it's always been the hub. So a lot of people talk about, in the analytics world, saying it's almost, almost a waste. You know, we've got all these fantastic math and stack grads coming out of the top universities and they end up working in startups or they end up working in the advertising world. Well, the cold hard reality is that that's where most of the data is generated, uh, certainly today, and it's you know pretty easy to get a hold of. So if you're a data junkie, it's somewhere to go and it doesn't pay that badly. I mean, you can go into finance for make a lot more money, but maybe not as much fun and you wouldn't probably have as much life. Anyway, long story short, I'm now on the tech side. Uh, so I moved to Group M, I'm now head up and the analytics for what is their tech stack um, in APAC. Again, and just to say, guys, I'm here um, in a personal capacity, noting that I say on the podcast is, you know, it's my own personal views, not the view of Group M nor WPP. So that I, when I talk, ask you about the rugby later and stuff like that, <laughs> and then statistical... Uh, you know, stuff you throw in about England and, and Ireland performance. I haven't even looked at the stats. I haven't even looked at the stats. Anyway, I'll leave that to the end. But, uh, cool. So, just, just, look, you're, you've been in data for yep. years. Um, you know, I've been in tech on and off for years, but uh, in a very different space. But how have you seen... Just talk to us, actually, you know, assuming our audience is varied and, and not a tech audience. We hear this brand or the, this, this expression of big data thrown around. I think even the general public now you know, think a lot about data just because most of us are on social media, most of us know our data is out there. But before we jump into the, you know, the big questions, what, can you categorize big data for us, what it means? Um, is it okay. just a shed load of data? <laughs> you know, is there more to it than that? Um, yeah, I think shed loads of data is a, a pretty good description. Um, I think, you know, certainly big data was a very common term if you go back, you know, 2010, you know, it was in 2008 to 2012, certainly, it was the zeitgeist of, of the term big data. Uh, I think it's fallen off right now. And the latest craze is our fashionable term is, you know, AI and machine learning and yada, yada, yada. Sure. And you'll see it in every pitch. I mean, in any media pitch, 
or any startup pitch, you know, going back five, ten years ago with big data, now they're talking about AI, machine learning, and blockchain. Um, and there's to be pretty which we are through, talking about. So it's yeah. true, <laughs> but to be pretty honest, a lot of people just put that stuff in, and you know, it's it's tentative at best, or you know, tangential at best, if they if they really are using what they say they're using. Um, in terms of big data, the idea of big data simply is that you're getting to a point where you're generating so much information that historical means of analyzing that data is not possible. So you're drowning in data. And the idea is that you're trying to find a needle in a haystack, um, but what's happening is that the haystacks are multiplying, the needles are not, or certainly not at the same rate. Yeah. So it's getting harder and harder to separate the signal from the noise. Yeah. Um, it was that guy from 538, his name escapes me, um, he wrote a great book called The Signal and the Noise. Um, what's his name? He worked for the, New, for, the, for the New York Times. He correctly forecasted Obama's win. He set up 538. Anyway, he's, he, he, Nate Silver, I think. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone on the podcast. Uh, but he's got a great book on that, Signal and the Noise. But big data is not a new problem. Right? I think big data was first stated as being a problem, I think it was maybe in the 30s or 40s, whereby it was in a British context where it was kind of, they were talking about, I believe it was tangential to the conversation around uh, updating the British education system from the classical system, which was, you know, learning the classics and so forth. Yeah. And there was part of the reason people were calling it out and the librarians were saying that we've come to a point in modernity that there's been so much knowledge created that the average learned person could not consume it all by any chance nor means. Yeah. So that's the problem of big data, big knowledge, and how do we how, how do we how do we deal with that? And then it got resurrected in the seventies. You know, I think in the seventies when they forecasted it was going to be an issue with the data they were beginning to when they could see where computers were going to go. And obviously, as the advent of the internet, people began to think about that it was going to become a problem again. But if you think about the problem in the thirties and forties and fifties, when they talk, spoke about it, that's that's defined. That's not just information, that's knowledge, right? Someone's taken whatever data they had, they analyzed it, they had information, they put it in a manner that could be propagated and consumed, right? Big data we're just talking about is a mess, an amorphous mess of data. Very, you know, everyone thinks, oh, I should use data. A lot of data is it's not useful, it's probably just noise. And noise. How do you, on earth do you categorize what is useful and what is not? And as a, as a two questions to that, how, you know, how does this data problem or opportunity relate to changes in media and how we look at media and how we look at advertising and you know how things are now quantified I assume or, or so, can they not be quantified any better? No, no I mean they definitely can definitely yeah. can um, one is just because it, you, you measure you can measure doesn't mean you should measure it or just because you have a data doesn't mean you, you, know, you, you need to pay attention to it certainly understanding what your KPI is so before I get into that yeah the whole argument going back certainly around 2010, the hype was that we won't need human intervention anymore, we won't need analysts, we will simply get machines, this is kind of, you know, pre, kind of, kind of people talking about AI and machine learning, but it's actually kind of in that area, and at least it would be in kind of automated data mining, essentially using a machine to see what the trends and the connections are in the data, and then from that they would say, okay, this data means X, Y, or Z, yep. these are the actions we could take. Now that's, it's true, you know, no human could probably go through some of the massive data that are there. Um, but also, the downside to some of that was that you were left with a black box. So it's great when it worked, but when it didn't work, you didn't know how to fix it. Mm. And I think the most common example that was given 
at the time was Google had a, a, a great piece that was an algorithm or whatever you want to call it, a model to forecast flu outbreaks based upon search behavior. And I think a few other variables. Based on, so looking at, because a certain People's number people. of people in a certain area. Now, it could be, I think it was, they said search data, but I'm sure it being yeah, Google, they had geo, and did, of course, geographical data, many, many other data points based upon your phone or whatever device you were using. Yeah. But they, they talked about it in the sense of search, because that's what most people can understand. Based upon the number of people searching and what they were searching for. Yeah. And linking that up with what were known to be flu outbreaks, they must have got medical data from, I'm, I'm guessing, the US somewhere and other governments. Um, but from that, they were able to forecast, you say, within a couple of days out, maybe it was two weeks out, saying there's going to be a flu outbreak here. Now, that was great. It worked, I think, for them for 18 months. Yeah. For, again, forgive me if I'm wrong, this is a while ago. Um, but then it stopped working, and they couldn't figure out why. And that's the, that's the kind of the conundrum of what you know, a machine can be. Great if it figures out, but it's a black box and you're, you're, yeah, you're yeah. And that was, I mean, that's categorized as AI. Uh, that's I'd that. have to look at... Or it might have been an algorithm, I, I suppose. Then I'd have to look at what they did, whether they built it themselves or whether the machine actually learned. We can talk about AI to a degree, I'm not an expert in it, but when you talk about machine learning, often they would build a model themselves and then get the machine to learn on training data sets and so forth and then improve the model from there. Yeah. Then you've got self-taught where the machine teaches itself. I won't go into it. I don't know if they use machine learning, but you're getting to that kind of area, if you know what I mean. It's, there's, no fine, there's no definite line, right, between this and that. Right? They were using advanced modeling techniques. Whether it was just them, I do, even if they built it themselves, I don't see them sitting behind a laptop and doing all these models for all these markets. They would have had to have some sort of level of automation or machine learning, including that for the regular person to access it. So what they exactly did, I don't know. But, um, so yeah, so I've lost my train of thought. You asked me about, oh yeah. So I was asking about the impact of, of data mm -hmm. on advertising it. And I suppose just to stretch that question out, and this, um, you know, Steve, my the um, co-founder of Task yep. actually, he put this question to me, left it on my voicemail earlier. I thought it was a great question, but um, he wanted me to ask you this. It is related to the same thing, social media advertising. But, you know, if you were to look at the last 50 years, of advertising, and you're not a guy that's 50 years old, so I'm not okay. <laughs> you know, how would you, you know, how would you say how it's changed and how data has influenced that change in advertising? Okay, so that's a good question, um, and I remembered the final point I had in that before we kill people with data. Yeah, um, the one thing I'll say is, look, there's myriads of data out there. Just because it can be measured doesn't mean you should. Just because you have data doesn't mean you need to pay attention to it. Now. I'm saying that as a data guy, uh, I don't want some you know utterly creative person who refuses to deal with reality, you know, running off and using this quote to to, to you know ref try and refute cold hard facts. But I also see too much people believing in the numbers too much. The key thing, and this leads into our next question, is yeah. select your KPI, your key performance indicator. That there's varying ways you can do it. The best one is a key outcome. It's not a survey. It's not you know what someone says they might do it is a passively collected true action of a consumer if we're talking about marketing what a consumer or business might do that you're recording and that is directly aligned with your business outcome so it's a sale for you yeah. or something that's very closely related to a sale a booking or a reservation for a sales call or whatever it might be that's the ideal as you move back from that because sometimes if you're in a business if you don't control your end sale point that's very hard to get to so you've got proxy metrics. Or, and then from proxy metrics, you might move back to what we might call in media terms, 
in process metrics. So for example, if I'm in advertising shampoo, um, you know, I, of course I can track at an aggregate level in a kind of a slow moving way. I know how much I'm selling in shampoo in various department stores or, or 7-Eleven or whatever it might be. Um, but you know, that data doesn't tell me day to day how I'm performing. If I want to know day to day how my media is performing, I'm going to have a kind of in process metric. So it might be how many people did I reach today? How many times did I reach them? What did it cost me? Uh, and then you can have a, a myriad of these metrics, right? I mean, a myriad of these KPIs. You know, what kind of online actions did they take? Did they go to my brand website to re- consume more content? Did they maybe um, search for my pro- my product homepage? These and, and what it does, you need somebody who knows what you're talking about, not just a, an analytics person, but also someone who understands the brand and understands consumer behavior to then map out what is the architecture you want to measure, and then what are the KPIs around that, right? And so it could be an in-process metric, a proxy metric, or an outcome metric, but you know, you, you do the best you can. Mm. Yeah. So the, and this, I mean, this goes back to the question you asked, but this access to data and just connection to individuals gives a way more ability to quantify the, the, the impact, the, cost, the impact, yeah. the success, um, you know, in the old days, and I, you know, 50 years ago, who knows, but advertising used to be billboards, I suppose, it started off, then it was TV, and, and it, you, you would have known there was a certain number of people at the end, but you have no, very little gauge of the interaction or, or the behaviour beyond, beyond the adverts. Um, you know, how does it look today, and how's it going to look in the future? I mean, that's, I know that's a huge question. Um, um, great question. I mean, back in the day, there were very few metrics. I think you, you know, you took the... The print, but I think there there were there were for the various there was you know a print organization and it still is, radio, TV, and so forth. So there's always been some degree of third party measurement. Yeah. I'm not going to go back into the '60s and '70s era of Mad Men, but if we even go back, let's say to the '80s and '90s, um, certainly TV, you've got it's under various names, Barb and whatever else. Nielsen's one of the big companies involved. Yeah. So TV's been measured. Um, it's not all you know. There's a, there's a panel of set top boxes. Uh, and it's not really you're supposed to tell what individual is watching often it's not right but, but then you still hopes. don't even know but that, I mean, absolutely you, you, see, you don't know whether they're actually you just know someone has that on their TV you right? just know that, that the TV is on yep um, and that whatever person is supposed to be watching it may or may not be in the room uh, and you know what channel they're watching and so forth and for that you work out the ratings so if you see you know ratings for how many people watched the Super Bowl or whatever the you know Champions League final uh, or X Factor, whatever that's they come from those systems, right? And it's just rolled up. It's 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's um, modeled up. There's a, there's a there's a word I can't. A mental brain rock after being in the gym, um, but essentially it's it, it's mapped out to the total population, so you get an idea about how many people are watching it. But and I I'm, I'm quite a visual person. I was going to draw it for you. That's can't okay. Do that we're, not, we're not on video, but it doesn't matter. You can draw it anyway. Um, well, I can but explain you, you, what you're drawing. No, you're, you're absolutely right in terms of. TV is a mass media, right? Yeah. So you know generally with your spots when you're doing it in media, you know, okay, I've reached X number of people. It's called them GRPs, right? It's about the number of people you reach and the frequency you reach in that. Um, but in reality, it's mass media, right? And what, yeah. what you have to end up doing is you hit an awful lot of people here who are big TV viewers, like they view a lot of TV, yeah. and you hit them a lot of times. There are people sitting home all day watching TV, right? Typically, um, historically, if you're in the 80s or 90s, right? Stay-at-home moms, the elderly, whatever it might have been, right? Uh, and then you start building your reach. 
right? These are the people who only watch TV in the evening or whatever like that, right? You don't hit them as many times, and then you max out out here, right? And then again, you're just hitting the people, whatever, who watch a lot of TV. Um, and you can see this in various models when you do it, but yeah, so it was an imperfect science, at, yeah, at best an imperfect science yeah. of how you're, how you're hitting people. But it's the best you can do. And then when you were buying it, all you did was try to buy the maximum number of GRPs. So you had to reach target. I want to reach 30% of the people. I want to get this many GRPs. And you talked about the cost. And that was it. And media, certainly media buying, media planning was a cost game. Yeah. Give me more, cheaper. More, cheaper. More billboards, more whatever. More center page spreads, whatever you want. Um, but before I get into that, the other one was, you know, at that time, okay, we're jumping around here a little bit. If I go back to, say, the late 80s and the early 90s, now, I mean, this is received information for me. It's been passed down to me from people who are in the industry, from what I've read. If you think back to the Mad Men era, if anyone's watched Mad Men, yeah. and I can't remember the character with the glasses and the beard who went out to live in L.A., he was the TV guy. And they had a system for but it was literally when TV came in and this system I just talked about of measuring TV came in. Before it was like winging a prayer. It was all creative. And up to the say the early nineties, media was entirely driven by creative. You had literally had Don Drapers who ruled the roost, completely, you know, egotistical in what they did, and the media department were like a bunch of nerds down the back. As data came more and more important, or at least the ability to measure that came true, media planning became a bit more complicated. And you started to get specialist media services and you began a divergence. So it used to be one stop, one stop shop, which was a creative agency with media buying and planning tacked on. They essentially disaggregated and then you had the kind of two industries. You had the creative industry and your media planning and buying. So then what side I'm on, I'm on with all the data is media planning and buying. Yeah. There's been huge, as everyone knows, dramatic changes in media planning and buying not just in the traditional media, but of course, obviously, the digital media, right, or the internet, essentially. And as we all know, your ability to measure and manage what's happening there is leaps and bounds above what it is in traditional media. Yeah, sure. So the planning and buying industry has had to dramatically change, right? From where it was, and you talk to old dudes from where they were in the 1990s, you know, come in, you know, we're certainly the 80s, right? They would have, uh, they were a certain percentage model, I'm not going to talk about it, but they were making an awful lot of money for maybe two hours work in the morning, a wet lunch and maybe an hour in the afternoon and then back down the pub. Um, no. that's, that's what they sell, sell the history to you right, <laughs> yeah. right? now, the and justification now it's, now it's non-stop, um, you know, everyone's on data, you're constantly in dashboards or I'm constantly providing dashboards and data to people. Um, but it's dramatically changed, you've got such a variety of experts, you know, within our own company we've got our own tech stack which is complementary to what the client might have. Uh, to amplify what, what is they're doing. So we've got engineers, we've got tech experts, we've got just data acquisition experts, data management and wrangling experts, we've got analysts, we've got insights people. And, what it, and, and is, then you've got the planners and the buyers and all, all, everything else and people understand. And what are your touch technology. points? Like a whole host, of, whole host everything. of different technologies. Yeah. And you know, from the man on the street, we know things like Google Analytics and you know, we know ways yeah. of analyzing uh, you know, online behavior. But it, there must be a whole host of ways of Oh, there's, a, I mean, there's a thousand and one. I mean, they're just tools, yeah. right? The math or the stats are pretty solid, uh, are pretty common across um, most of the platforms or, or, or most of the, the software you can use. Um, okay, digital is, a, is, how should I put it, right? There's, digital is almost getting traditional as well. So when I talk about traditional media, that's TV, out of home, uh, print, radio, cinema, yeah. right? 
Um, TV's digitizing. Well, yeah, digital is now yeah. becoming traditional. Yeah. Is yeah, an exactly. interesting uh, comment. And, and, actually, and, yeah. and, and the digital was then display, uh, search, then came in social, you know, Facebook, yeah. Twitter, Instagram, uh, and then you've got YouTube and video and, and so forth. The proliferation you have now, you've got influencers, you've got content, you've got so many different formats. Um, it's it's huge, and all of them will be tracked and read, and there and there's more coming on by the day. Well, this, but within well, that, because of the the, the 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 amount of publishers that you have, what happened is it's called programmatic media. Um, so it's it's basically like you would be trading a stock, right? It's the same technology, um, simply that you've got over here. I won't. It's called so the client level. It's called a DMP, data management platform. Just that's their own data. They might have an email about you or whatever else. They want to target an ad to you, which is Matt. They with, the, with our help we push that down. What's called a DSP, demand side platform, which is reading the open auction of inventory. And they go, we got Matt, or they won't know it's you, but some sort of ID associated with you. They know you're here, and it's this ad with this space format, which they have to fire, and it's at this price, or they have to bid for it, but they're willing to bid this price to get you. Based on okay, you're losing and, and a whole wealth of, and a whole wealth of data saying that. This is this guy. He's you're based on th- me. What being online? Yeah, you're being tracked all the time. Yeah, yeah. So you're being tracked all the time. Um, it, Google and Facebook being the biggest players in terms of that tracking, but there are other players as well. But on the other side, for you to do that, the other the publisher. So if you were on, let's say, New York Times website, they have got their own SSP supply side platform that they've pushed that inventory in. So the two machines, the machines are talking to each other, say, Matt's here. Who wants Matt? Who wants a certain man ad? These are the spaces you can fill up, and this is the price it's going to go with, or it's going to be an option. So I, I, I want to ask some questions on this because yeah. I find it interesting. Because I've been, you know, yeah. I, I, well, how, 10 years ago, maybe uh, 2009, I think it was, maybe after, I worked for a company called Alterian. I was selling, I'm thinking even yeah, back then, yeah. the products were pretty, you know, that yeah. was at the point where they launched social media monitoring. But you know, then we had products that but sat on a website that would, you know, detect things like um, obviously where you are on the website, how long you stay there, how where your yeah. house is moving. But so just give me the kind of you know I want to hear the most freaky stuff that's out there today in terms when you talk about tracking Google's track. I mean, you hear all these rumors of phones being tra- tracking, voice tracking. That's it. I did. Is it there really? Did, um I'm the same as you. So before I get into that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might be I taking off We might have lost. Topic, we might lose the the people. I'll definitely answer that question. Yeah, yeah. Just in case we lose the people, we were talking about there was traditional media, which everyone knows, yeah. which is now just called offline media, and then you had the you know the typical digitalist, you know, digital media or online media, and now you've got programmatic as the latest iteration of online media. All media will go the, the, the route of programmatic. It's just a matter of getting the inventory or the, the publishers to buy into it eventually. Um, and there's reasons they don't want to. They, they want guaranteed income. They don't want to put it out there in an open auction. It's just a business thing, right? But the technology is there. Why would you have people negotiating and doing IOs, like, you know, contracts, literally, yeah. when you can just trade like you would a financial stock, right? So that's the direction everything's going to go. And media planning and buying has had to deal with all of that, right? And you know, there, there's, there's convulsions in the industry. There's a reason that stock prices have been down for a lot of the holding companies in this area, right? That being said, from my perspective, I think the biggest challenges have been for the creative agencies. So historically, they made a 30-second TV ad for a million dollars, and then they made a few print ads 
and you know maybe maybe a radio ad or something like that are out of home and job done right and you ego satiated your and the value of that content is becoming exactly less so, and less so we, we've there. had it so, so a lot of them were just unable to adjust quick enough whereby they're still stuck in the world of making that type of content so we need 20 five second videos and we need a two a two minute video or a 10 minute video yeah, so we need yeah. long and short form content and they have to be effective and, and designed for the platform they go on. So it's made it massively more complicated to generate well, also high the, quality creative and content for marketing. And the tools that are now coming out to be able to do that from an individual standpoint, you know, like the, the ability for someone to download an app and create uh, uh, create their own little 15 second and advert. We've, we've got absolutely fantastic experience. So, and you're almost getting, so we had divergence, you're almost starting to get convergence. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. Yeah. Where the kind of planning and buying and creative are coming back together because they have to. We're at all the data, we know what's working and what's not. They need to know what all kind of formats they need to make and so on and so forth. So you, you are beginning to see this, but for our own cells and our cell, we've, for top, I won't mention like top, top, I mean like top brands, fashion brands, who had this challenge. We managed to source I mean, in Asia, you've got like the Philippines, Australia, absolute powerhouses, small creative shops, kind of, you know, a couple of people, really creative, working themselves, making absolute world-class content that fits the digital sphere and fits the, and works in the formats that they're allowed to work in mm. and wins awards and doing it not for a million dollars. Yeah, right. You know, so there's utter disruption happening throughout the industry. It's being utterly disrupted primarily through the advent of data and also with the advent of the, uh, the the big ones, right? Google, Facebook, Amazon coming in now, right? So, and also we haven't even talked about China, right? BAT in China, right? Yeah. Well, you can talk about China if you want. Actually, I mean, more on a personal level, I was interested to, you know, probably get onto some subjects. Um, actually, before we jump into that, let me ask you something that stays related. And if you can, you can knock, you, you you can knock this me, down. You wanted to ask me on tracking. Oh, yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, so, very let's quickly, do that first. I, on, on, this was on, just, the, on the voice, yeah. I've asked him directly in meetings, kind of, okay, off the record, because, you know, Frank has said it to me, I've been in situations where we were in a conversation and next thing I'm getting served an ad for something unusual. Yeah, well, I think everyone's had this experience now, right? You're on a phone call, you're on WhatsApp, what, you're on a WhatsApp call, you mention going it's, camping, you go back to your Facebook feed, someone's trying to sell you a tent. I mean, I'm like, seriously, did I just imagine that? Or they, you know? All I'll say is that they never intimate that it exists. I've never been told blank it didn't. Um, but they certainly do not have any product in that area that I'm aware of. Yeah. So maybe they are or not because I mean, you, you're signing a data rights agreement with them, right? They can do whatever they want essentially up till now. Um, so maybe they're doing kind of you know little tests to see if it's going to happen, but they are. I'm sure they are painfully aware that that is kind of the freaky end of stuff for individuals, and that you know they mightn't be able to make a product because of the kerfuffle that might create. Um, people are becoming more and more aware. I mean, my own company, Group N, and it, you can see it in Warwick as well. But we published it as well. We did a survey all over APAC and I think it was like eleven or fourteen markets. Can't recall that looked at this whole thing about perception of um, you know consumers concern with, with data privacy. Uh, interestingly, right, um, the people who are most concerned are those who are tech savvy. But you can do, we can tell because we've got huge surveys that we, you know, we, we, we have the, the, 
the database ourselves proprietary, we can question these people. But we also have it linked ourselves. They're aware of it. We can track their online behaviours as well. So we know the ones that have responded that they're most concerned with data privacy are also the ones that are much more tech savvy, much more business savvy. The moms and dads who are much more interested in parenting and should be interested in you know their kids being on YouTube videos and all that and what's being tracked are the least concerned. So it's going to tell you, as people get more and more savvy, tech savvy, there's going to, this concern is only going to increase. Now in terms of what's going on, if you really want to see under the kimono or look under the hood or the bonnet, whatever term you want to use, to be honest, no one really cares about Matt, right? No one's really tracking Matt Ricard, right? And there's very strict rules around PII data, right? So you may have given your name and a number to a website to buy something or whatever it might be. That absolutely cannot be shared and no company in their right mind would want that. What they will want is some sort of hashed idea associated with you. They don't know your name. They don't, all they know is male, okay. 35 to 44, right. interest in XYZ, lives in this area, suspected on income Y. That's all they need to say, all right, this guy's probably interested in buying beer. Let's sell him a beer ad. So we'd rather send it to you than send it to your lovely girlfriend so that, you know, because you're much more likely to buy it than she is. So it's not as nefarious as people think. I, I, and you just made a really good point as well. When you, you know, the whole terms, terms and conditions aspect at a consumer level, have you met anyone ever that's read through? I mean, you know, the, I, if you, you the, said that then, I'm like, I would have no idea what's in half the T's and C's of, you know, if you're WhatsApp T's and, 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 and By design, right? And I think yeah. GDPR was fantastic, initiated by the European government, uh, general directive um, on personal, what the hell is it? It'll come to me. General directive on personal data, so like data responsibility, something like that. Um, I should know that actually. Um, GDPR has been fantastic. It's been replicated now in California and a bit stricter. Um, Asia is not behind, right? Australia's got laws on the books and more coming. Indonesia's got quite tight data laws. They're not probably enforced, but they're there. They're there. China's got quite strict laws. Um, in terms of, they're more concerned with foreigners collecting sensitive information on, on the Chinese, um, but they have those rules in place, so they are in place. Everything we do, given we're a UK-based company, you know, the head office is there, is GDPR compliant. Uh, and GDPR company is very, very easy for anyone to understand. It's about consent. You literally have to tell the consumer when they sign up for anything, or if you've got a website now, or we, we collect cookies, that's them telling you. Before they didn't flash that, that's GDPR now. So if you sign up for something, they're like, this is what we will do with your data. Do you consent or not? If you consent, that's fine, and they will do that. If at any time they want to change what they're doing with your data, do something else, they have to get consent again. That's primarily what it means for consumer. And they can't, oh, part of it, they cannot have legalese for it that's a very in basic language simple language explain to you what they're doing and it's being adopted around the world i think it's a good thing because consumers should know what's happening with their data and it's been said before guys if you're not paying for facebook if you're not paying for your service in google if you're not paying for a product you are the product because they're making it up advertising there's such an expectation now that consumers have i mean people have just forgotten about the fact they don't pay for things i mean it's you know well, facebook's the best you, example people you know I mean, I get a huge amount of value out of it on a personal level, just with silly things like event. And I accept fully that I am 
being used. Do you know how much you're worth so, to Facebook? And I'm not saying this is, you, you can get this in Facebook's, no, um, their financial, their financial uh, information. They you're worth in Asia, you're worth, if I remember correctly, somewhere between 13 and $18 on average per year. Based on what my age, that, my... What, 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 on average, what they generate for you in advertising. In wow. North America, um, it's about 80 bucks, 80 USD a year. So if you want, if, and I'm sure they've thought about this in Facebook, Oh, so if you pure, want, this if, is purely a number per region based on okay. how much advertising to get per user. Yeah, okay. right? What's my total advertising revenue? And then divided by number, my number of users, and then there's your, your general number, right? Um, so if you wanted to get it for free, in a, not for free, so ad free in America, the implication is that you should be paying more than 80 bucks, maybe 100 bucks or something like that, and then you would get ad free. Or the other way, there's a really interesting shared economy business model where you go out and create a network and say, hey, come on our network, this is what you're worth, we're going to give you this much as a shareholder of this business. And those, and you, those models exist, absolutely, really? those models are being created, they okay. are being created about, okay, to be honest, I mean, that's a, your individual, it's a bit of a utopian approach to how Facebook works. People talk about the, the new oil, you know, it's kind of a hacky statement. To be honest, your individual data worked on an ad, it's sense, right? So the idea of how much you're going to get back is not huge. You might, maybe you get some awards, it's going to, you know, so rewards is going to work for you. Um, the other thing is, is about also about selling data. To be honest, a lot of companies are trying to flog data, you'd be surprised. And it's not worth that much because a lot of it's ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. If you've got unique data, it's worth, and also the other thing is that whether it's worth something to the, to the person you're trying to sell it to. Amazon's got amazing data. That's worth a lot to Amazon. It's probably worth a lot to the people who are trying to sell stuff through Amazon, but it's not worth a lot to a lot of other people. Some of them might be, but not the whole lot. So the idea of the fluidity of data and people flogging and selling data, honestly, it's not as, it's not as fluid as you well, might think. Well, I think, think it probably, 15 years ago, I think it was a bigger thing in a while. I mean, at an individual level, you know, <coughs> when mobile phones first came out, I mean, the value of creating data within a spreadsheet back then that you could then sell to another business, I mean, that's just kind of gone, right? I mean, it's because it's accessible everywhere. But um, I want to ask you about a completely different subject. We yeah. didn't do any pre... Uh, you're completely willing to kick me out of the room when I ask this if you know nothing about it. Sure. But it's it's not about data, but it is data-related. It's we, a subject we, that I'm interested before in. Before we switch, I think yep. we're going to have to listen through this again because I think there's quite <laughs> complex topics in here. And we're just... That's all right. I don't know if it's going to make any sense to the, uh, the, the person over there. I'm fine to re-record and have like, <laughs> you know, okay, right, if you chat. need to know about this, here's your, your, your two-second primer, or sorry, 20-second primer. That's cool. Well, yeah. So... I wanted to ask about, talk about fake news. I find it, I mean, this yep. for me is an interesting topic. Um, I don't know if it's interesting to everyone and maybe it's just because of the types of podcasts. I, in fact, I stopped reading the news, right, about, I mean, not completely, but I pretty much disconnected myself from the news about 18 months ago. And I suddenly realized I seemed to learn more about what was going on through podcasts, which is what got me interested in podcasts. Yep. I found by listening to the right interviews with the right people, I was listening to voices from places like the New York Times, like the political arena, who've been on, um, you know, been on the campaigns. So you, you end up hearing from the actual voices that influence the media, but they're not coming from left or right or middle. They're coming from their voice on a, you know, in most cases, I would hope, independent podcast. Yep. So I found I kind of know better what's going on in the world by educating myself through that medium. I don't think many people do that, but it's been refreshing for me. I got tired of the media, but this whole fake news scenario, situation, um, I mean, it is 
kind of crazy. I mean, it's like, what is a lie anymore? What is true? I mean, the media has always been a place for, you know, for yeah. um, fabricated stories and focusing on stuff. So, but, well, firstly, I mean, I know, you know, my question is, you know, is there a, is there a data backup to this that can give us um, a path to truth at some point? Or is that just too much of a, of a dream? And do you just have any general opinions on, you know, the kind of state of media and fake news and... Yeah, I'll go, I'll go general yeah. first. Um, very good question. Um, and, you know, to your point, while being a news junkie, I try to... Ideally, what you should do is only look at the news at most once a week because all the ripples and noise is done with and you can just see kind of what's happening that week. And even then, you know, the wider and wider lens you go, it just becomes historical, right? What actually happened, you know? Who says this or that or what might or might not happen goes away. It's just what happened with some insight and why it might have happened. Um, so I agree with you, stepping away is probably a good thing. I am a bit of a news junkie, but I do... Uh, what I enjoy about it is... Uh, let me just clarify something. I don't want to sound yeah. like I'm the, you know, in a cave or something because yeah. I think it's just my... my Participation in the news is not an active participation. Of course, I'm, you know, I'm surrounded by media. I absorb a lot of it. I might, but I'm just, yeah. It's more. I don't want it to sound like I'm this kind of hermit who's disconnected. Enough, but it's more the active participation in trying to understand what is going on from the mainstream media. Because I found I would have to kind of go CNN, Fox, NBC. I'd have to watch that's, five channels. That's what I do. And then take a freaking. Yeah, I, so, that's what I do. So, I was, so anyway, so I was not so Irish or, publications on either yeah. side. I look at a bit of BBC, Euronews, then I'll switch over and look at the Washington Post. I prefer to the New York Times. I feel it's a bit more impartial. Then I'll look at CNN. Then I'll look at Fox. I'll even look at the Drudge Report. And it's interesting, you know, what, how they cover stories. Yeah. How they sometimes don't cover stories at all, particularly Fox News. That I mean, it's not a news channel. It is an opinion, an opinion place. Um, and I'll even check in on Infowars every now and again just to see what lunacy might be going on there. Um, yeah, same. I've done that. Well, it's been taken down now, isn't it? And I use an app. Exchange is gone. Well, you can go to the website and I use okay. an ad blocker on the site. Um, so they're not getting any, any inventory out of me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely think... So, in terms of the news, yeah, I do think it's, it, it erupted into silos. Uh, a lot of people shouting at each other. Um, more so in America, I think it's still quite balanced. If you, I know Britain always had an issue, right? Daily Mail and the Telegraph versus BBC and the Guardian and whatnot. It did really, right? yeah. You know, the Sun, right? The sun was always, right? Yeah, the Sun was always very conservative, right? Um, it was the Sun that won it, right? That then went after the kind of working class market, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, it, it's always been there. For me, the biggest analogy, and I've had a conversation with a friend of mine on this, and it, it, it's something that struck me. And it was actually I listened to a podcast. Um, what's that history podcast a very famous one you know Wrath of Cans and all that I know the one you t- I don't listen to it but I know um, the one you're talking Hardcore about History Hardcore History it's yeah. a great one he's got I think I remember it might just be one episode it talks about the Reformation in Germany and essentially about this is all driven with the invention of the printing press knowledge was controlled by the then Catholic Church and they disseminated what you know books and, and it, it, to publish anything was incredibly expensive and books were you know a lot of them handwritten and so forth so knowledge was controlled then you invented invention of the printing press people could generate and spread knowledge at a dramatically enlarged rate compared to what it was before essentially it was a, a huge increase in the ability to 
create knowledge and consume knowledge, right? And that's when you first got, okay, I'm sure if you asked the Catholic Church, you know, what's the guy who nailed 99 theses to the door? The guy who started the Reformation, what's his name again? Yeah. Mental block, guys, we were in the gym right. today. Uh, but the, um, but from, uh, essentially you had a huge amount of, how should, it was the spark that ignited a lot of historical events, right? But one of the great ones in is, I can't remember the name of the city, they got obsessed with a kind of a specific cult and they locked themselves away in a city and they were doing all sorts of like, it, 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 this is what the focus of the, the, the podcast is on the hardcore history. Yeah. And there was a lot of bizarre kind of stuff going on there and, you know, thinking about damnation and all this and eventually they got invaded and, or they had to get, you know, they, they were sieged and, and, and taken back. That's fake news, right? It's the same thing. So if you think about it on a communion level, right, there's the guy down the street is a total gossip. You know he's a gossip and you know to take everything he says with a pinch of salt. Then you go on, you don't know who's writing this. A lot of people haven't got the nuance to understand that what is this website that's creating this story. A lot of people like to think that it's like nefarious guys in Moldova or whatever, you know, put, putting out all these stories. And there might be a bit of that and they're just doing clickbait. But the reality is it's people who have this belief or perception right and they hate the other side and they're going to write up a story but then they go on. so they're propagating and a lot of people are consuming it now the people who typically are taken for fake news are those who are a little less educated a little less savvy certainly technolo technologically savvy and also a bit more biased in their opinions anyway because they have fairly strong opinions one way or the other now to take that into extremists, if you, and I know from talking to people on Facebook, for example, in Myanmar, a lot, so they, they, you know, they, they, the internet is just beginning to expand there, uh, Facebook's quite pervasive. In, in Myanmar. Myanmar, right? Yeah. Many, 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 many people there think that Facebook is the internet. They think there's, they don't understand there's a difference, they don't understand there's a wider concept of the internet out there. Their only sole touch point of the internet, pretty much, is Facebook. And that's where they get their news. And they just think it's like the newspaper down the street. And then when they see a news about, you know, these Muslims did this and they burned a Buddhist, whatever the stories might be, they, you know, get enraged and so forth. And that's what a fake news problem is. And you've got people who are a little bit, same you have with newspapers, with the sun, with everything else, you've got those in the know, and those cynical enough to exploit that media and to exploit that new medium, that new... Well, to drive outcomes they want. There's an interesting, yeah, but you touch on a really interesting point here. I think, in I, some of it, and I think some of it's very. Sorry, to get back to the point. Yeah, much like the, the the invention of the printing press, a lot of it also is just there is no right and rhyme or reason for it. It's just one dude at home or one girl at home who's got a thing and a bee in her bonnet about something and writes it, and it goes viral, if you will, right? To use the term, right? There's that, and also there are bad actors. There's bad actors who are organized, who are trying to drive, and you, you certainly had that in Myanmar, but you also have just people sharing stories and whatever, or writing their own experiences, and, you know, it's quite biased and whatever else, and full of, you know, be it racism or, or, or sectarianism, whatever it might be. Yeah, I was going to say, you hit on a really important point, though, and one of the main... One of the big differences between kind of print media and you know the old style broadsheets and and um, you know online. When you look at this these whole algorithms behind Facebook and the ability to kind of force feed people what they seem to like or at least yeah. what they are liking, then you have this kind of snowball effect of the devil if, in the you, if you use that example of the 
people in Myanmar looking at uh, whatever the trouble yeah. with the the communities, and and suddenly they're being fed more and more of that content. Oh, that they can see. That actually, what you just said as an issue of them thinking Facebook is the internet, they suddenly become thinking that this micro environment that they then live in within Facebook yeah. that is telling them this is what the world is exactly. is ex ex accentuated because of Excellent feeding point. them more of the side, which is a dangerous The, the algorithm is just a kid, right, to be honest. Yeah. It's a, and he's told, okay, we want you to write this to optimize so that they consume more and more content and then we can serve them more and more ads, right? Because it's more eyeballs and eyeballs, uh, they, and they make money on that, right? Eyeballs are ad space, ad space is money. Yeah, right. So they want to serve you more and more content that you read. This guy's not thinking, they're not thinking about the wider consequence of in a political campaign or this, right? And I agree with you. If I'm maybe not that educated, you know, some sort of dude, maybe 25 or whatever, sitting down in Myanmar, and I'm getting most of my news from this, and I start really clicking on stories about what I perceive or, you know, put a you know, Rohingya attacking Buddhists or something like that, right? And I really click and consume those. The algorithm's going to funnel me more of those yeah. stories. And then I might think that there's an absolute war going on up there. But in reality, I'm reading just 5% of all the news out there. And I'm just reading it in various ways and rehashed and being amplified and so forth and reinforced. So, and I agree with you, they can get an absolutely... It's, it's not an intended outcome, mm. but it's a very real outcome. Yeah, for sure. And you, I mean, again, I think the, you were touching on the fact that... You're right, it's always been around, fake news and all and, your um the history what was the history channel we'll leave the link um it's a uh, hardcore history we'll leave that hardcore history in the comments well um, while we're on while we're talking about a question i can do it i'll bring up the actual uh, episode i'll get the name of it yeah, yeah we'll put it on I'll, I'll put it on the podcast at the end but um you, you know one of the i just wanted to kind of comment on something you said i mean i almost feel this fake news phrase has almost kind of come into reality through the kind of trump era and him using it actually and then his ability to post. I mean, it, this influence that people can have through social media now, I mean, him on Twitter, posting out that things are fake and then posting out fake comments as in themselves is, you know, that's... It, it's a great term for him, right? He, 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 he is, he's a marketeer, first and foremost, right? He's a, P, he's a PR guy, he's a spin guy, I agree with you. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he ever built, did he ever build a successful building? As far as I know, he's a terrible businessman, and most economic analysis is that he would have been better off putting the money he got from his father, which is far greater than $1 million, it's hundreds of millions, uh, it's been proven, he would be far wealthier man if he put that into a trust fund that making, like, even if they were making 4%, you normally make much more, 8 to 10, even at 4%, he'd be a far wealthier man. He's been a colossal, colossal value destroyer, the so-called deal maker. But what he is very good at is the soundbite and self-promotion PR. Yeah. He's a and classic, very good influence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a he understands the he's a classic confidence man. That's yeah. what he is. Um, I'm going back here. It's I'll, it's Dan Carlin, uh, hardcore history. Okay, go on. And you, can, you can quote it rather than me throw it in. Yeah, and uh, oh, I can only go back to Blueprint for Armageddon, King of Kings, Throne of the Celtic Holocaust. Nova. I can't find the episode on my what I've got listed here. No worries, we'll find it later, and I'll stick it in the notes for the podcast. Yeah, and um, we come, we're kind of getting into the 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 end zone a little bit, so maybe ask some more. Uh, we're gonna have to yeah, list this again. We've covered <laughs> some. Um, <laughs> we've been jumping we've around an awful lot. Well, it's a conversation, isn't it? so right. that's, that's the. Uh, let's ask some more kind of deeper, serious stuff. What, what about? Um, can you you know thinking back over your life, is, is there one piece of advice or a something you read 
so either a situation or where someone gave you a piece of advice or something you read that you know had an impact on your life that you know you've taken it with you from that day I was never much good for listening to people um, <laughs> so so if you remembered something here then it's got to be big ah uh, god I had some amazing teachers definitely that I remember um, just out of their passion and their love of their subject and you know how well they prepared you, and you kind of with hindsight you realise that um, I think a lot of the lessons I've learned I kind of learned the hard way often enough um, and there's certain truths that I've kind of through experience have come upon that work for me and I think work for some people when I impart it to them um, you know I was very certainly when I started my career incredibly type A individual which has its benefits but also has got some very real drawbacks mm. um, and when I see that certainly when I was a younger manager and, and working more directly with the teams on the job or be on, on the, the project or on that campaign when I would see that kind of you know if they're getting into kind of somewhat they might think it's a meaningless row but to me it kind of would be right they're kind of sweating the small stuff and so forth and kind of you know getting the clashes at work and stuff I would always say certainly for work work and particularly when they come to me if, if someone's been promoted ahead of them often juniors would have complained about it and you know be upset with it and I also you know there's the real fact that you know if they're better than you they're better than you but also they have to realise that work is a marathon not a sprint <laughs> true and that a lot of young people just pushing so hard they want to get so hard so fast I saw it certainly in the startup world and working in American companies they get burnt out so quick as well but also as I tell people it's a marathon not a sprint just because that person overtook you right now doesn't mean you're not going to overtake them around the next corner and also I tell them that you, you've got two jobs really in work right but I would say you know, two, yeah two jobs your pr primary job and you can't stop doing anything about this some people will not like you right your job is to slow the rate that you make enemies and increase the rate that you make friends and allies that's your job it certainly works for me because it's so easy to get self-righteous and to be you know kind of going gung-ho and just kind of blasting people out of the way it's not it's a marathon number one be nice to people and number two you never know where someone's going to be where they can you know be in a position of power or a position to help you and I don't mean that in a kind of a transactional sense I just mean in a kind of a humanist sense right hold your fire it's a marathon not a sprint try to be nice always right and then if you can and I tell people if you do that right you will be successful in the long run sounds like a great mini philosophy for anyone trying to survive in, in a fast paced corporate world and it's a good segue for the next question which is um, you know you're in the midst of a a fast-paced successful career um, you know done a lot already probably got a lot more ahead of you um, you know any any big failures either professionally or personally even that you're happy to share and, and you know failure is a natural part of everyday life right but any real big failures that you, you know happy to share and what you took from you know those that, that or those situations I think certainly earlier in my career a lot of the failings would have come from ego and pride. Now, I've had successes related to those, but certainly when I look back, 
just and not asking for enough help. I think it's a very Irish thing. Um, to I don't know what I certainly maybe from my generation, I noticed that when we were working with, with the in an American company in a campus in, in you know in Dublin, we're servicing all of Europe, but we're all based in Dublin, so we're on flights continuously. But a lot of the people there were from the Irish education system, really top notch. Everyone like with great degrees and masters and so on and so forth. Everyone really knows their stuff. But God, was there a fear of failure? And just, you know, people almost like killing themselves to cover up, you know, and hiding the fact that they were having trouble on a project. Mm-hmm. While the Americans were far more open about, you know, and, and, you know, and willing to ask dumb questions. Like, hey, people were almost looking back, it's weird that people were almost, you could see that people were almost afraid to ask a question because they would be considered dumb or something, right? Yeah. It was so competitive that they did, they, they were willing to risk real impact on their career on the project rather than just be, you know, ask a question in a, in, a, in, a, in a board meeting or whatever, or I should say at the boardroom where we would have big meetings. Um, so certainly I had to get over that. You know, who cares if you're stupid in the room or if people perceive that? It, it's getting over that kind of idea, right? Just, you know, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. Um, there's nothing wrong with not being the most knowledgeable in the room. I mean, it's part of the reason I've constantly you know, moved on. I, why I took on this technology role and why I jumped originally into media after being in the consultancy game is that, and I, I think it was, it might have been one of Tim Ferriss's uh, uh, podcasts or blogs, when you're the most knowledgeable person in the room, it's time to change the room. Because mm, yeah. you're not going to learn anything else. And it's very easy to satiate your ego by staying in that room. Um, so yeah, I think for me, it was about, what, and I think probably to do with my childhood and so forth, I very much too independent and wanted to do things myself or whatever, and it didn't reach out timely enough uh, or often enough for help when I needed it. Uh, and that le- led to some sticky situations. Got through them all, for the most part, thankfully, but it also involved me almost killing myself in terms of the amount of work and effort I had to put in. Um, so I learned that the hard way. Cool. Um, so yeah, it's all, reach out, people are there to help, right? I think, um, yeah, and just what you were saying about this whole failure, I think the Silicon Valley culture has helped to change shift this this feeling of failure because it's become now a much more natural part of success right and it always has been but people were never willing to admit it for some reason i've got a counterpoint to that yeah i, I agree with you absolutely i think it's a great thing it's very easy for me to have this point of view i live and work in asia the pie is always growing you're never really fighting to the death with anybody over a piece of pie yeah i do see it sometimes when i go back to europe whereby the pie is pretty much defined the growth is much slower and so people really love having their piece of that pie and their title and anything that will risk that pie they will you know push it down and hide it um, and I've heard certain I won't mention countries I've seen and heard in certain countries in Europe even you know on, on, let's say not the developed side but you know when old Western Europe have that point of view whereby the boss is supposed to be the most knowledgeable person technically and that, you know, the boss can show no weakness technically, which is bizarre, really, because you never can, right? You know, you have to have a team of people, right? Um, but yeah, so I think it's all smiles and sunshine for you and me to say that. And also Silicon Valley, the pie is generally always growing, right? Fail, fail fast, right? Um, but I think, you know, if you're going into a, a slow growth situation or company, you know, the failure mightn't be viewed the same way. It's all there. It's all about risk avoidance, right? Yeah, for sure. Right? Look, we're nearly, we're pretty much at the end, and I massively appreciate you, you know, giving me some of your time. I'll, 
I've got to ask about the rugby, of course. Okay. I've done like, I think on the, three po- the last three podcasts, I've ended talking about rugby, but obviously I'm a rugby fan. It's the Six Nations. You know, I'm an Englishman. You're an Irishman. We have one great kind of weekend or Saturday lineup. Great for you. So we've just well, got a, we've got a, we've got a game against well, Wales. We're not going to uh, we have a very outside chance of doing it. We're not going to go into a longer angle, but but what are you? How do you see it rolling out Saturday night? Um, well, Saturday I mean, I think it's, it's very clear, right? You know, England's got Scotland at home. Scotland have been you know, dramatically improved over the past few years. However, they're shorn of some key players. Um, so I, I do back England to win that one. Um, then the other game is done between ourselves and Wales. Wales, they've got the sniff of blood. They're going for a Grand Slam. They're at home. Um, money would have to back them, and I think it probably does. So Wales marginally? Uh, I would say Wales marginally. If Ireland, I think, from Ireland's perspective, they probably want you know a damn good showing to put it up to Wales. I do think we're capable, if we're on our best, of beating them anyway. Um, I think it would be good... I mean, obviously, if we win, then England wins the Six Nations. Um, I think it would be good for Ireland to beat Wales to kind of just say, yeah, well, to, I'm, be, to, I'm to, going, to get us an, 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 a positive end to the Six Nations. Well, I'm going Ireland marginally, England by a big margin, right, England by a big over margin. Scotland by a big margin, so we'll see. We'll be watching it together. So uh, Yeah. Cool. And do you want to leave it? You did at the beginning. Uh, is there any, if anyone wants to get hold of you? Just, I mean, go to, on LinkedIn. Um, you, you don't. You're not a big Twitter guy, or do, do you have? A they will. They'll never find me, and I'm. I just use it for as a news oh, aggregator. I'm not really, you know, firing stuff out on Twitter. Um, so definitely get me on LinkedIn if they want. Um, I will say I do think we're going to have to go back through the beginning of this because I think we threw a, a, a mountain, a mountain of it. <laughs> well, we will let the listeners be. We'll let the listeners be the judge. But, if, um, if anybody finds it, you know, difficult to go through, just math got me to run through. Three or four decades of the media <laughs> world, creative plus plus uh, media planning buying, the role of data and analytics, big data, AI, so pretty much the whole gambit. There are books, there, 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 there are libraries written on this stuff, dude. <laughs> cool. On that, I'll take that as a, as a compliment, and uh, on that note, we'll... Um we will call it an end. I'll leave your details on, on the on the um, podcast notes, so if anyone wants to get a hold of you on anything. And, um, yeah, thanks again. Cool. Pete? Thank you, man. Yeah, cool. All the best for task. Cheers.